Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. This, I promise, is the final podcast of 2020. Good riddance, 2020. We have an all-star cast. But before we jump into the highlights and lowlights of the year, and maybe a little bit of predicting of, of the next year, just some of the sounds that are going to resonate from 2020, the immortal words of the President of the United States. We have a total of 15 cases. And again, when you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. Close, close. And, and then, of course, there was... We're going to spend a lot of time talking about United States Senators. Ted Ted Cruz um, made a rock-solid prediction about mid-year 2020 as Ted Cruz. If it ends up that Biden wins in November, I hope he doesn't. I don't think he will. But if he does, I guarantee you the week after the election, suddenly all those Democratic governors, all those Democratic mayors will say, everything's magically better. Go back to work, go back to school. Suddenly the problems are solved. You won't even have to wait for Biden to be sworn in. All they'll need is election day and suddenly their willingness to just destroy people's lives and livelihoods, they will have accomplished their task. That's wrong. It's cynical. And and, and we shouldn't be a part of it. Yeah. Um, And this wouldn't be complete without Lindsey Graham um, sharing his, his insights into American democracy. If Republicans don't challenge and change the U.S. election system, there'll never be another Republican president elected again. President Trump should not concede. Should not concede. Okay, so for our year-end show, we have assembled the cast. Bill Kristol, JVL, Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller. I'm actually here. Hey, before we we get started, uh, can we talk about Josh Hawley? I'm just going to just toss it up. Josh Hawley um, announcing... On uh, on Wednesday, that that he in fact would uh, object to the counting of the electoral college votes, um, obviously defying Mitch McConnell. Everybody thought it was just going to be Tommy Tuberville, but no, it's going to be Josh Hawley. Who wants to take this ball? I'm going to throw it to Bill. Bill Josh Hawley. Here's our future. This is the Republican Party. Uh, you know, Jim Swift and I before we got on the air were reminiscing about uh, and, and Jay Bill and I about Josh Hawley who came to visit me and a couple of some of my colleagues at the Weekly Standard around you know, 2010, I'm going to say. He was kind of a moderate Republican, probably a little more moderate than we were. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt fan. I think that he wrote a short book on Teddy Roosevelt that had been his master's thesis or something. And uh, he had maybe clerked for the Supreme Court and, you know, was very much in the mainstream of enlightened, reform conservatism. And here we are a decade later. It's kind of, it kind of says it all. I mean, totally cynical, opportunistic demagogic and dangerous i would say tim miller yeah just phony is the key word i mean josh hawley is just such a phony uh uh, he took a gap year in london uh to teach at an elite private school uh you know i don't i don't have his bio in front of me i forget if he was yale or harvard bill probably knows the difference uh between the two us us normies i I think he has such bad character it must be yeah it must be hell yeah um So uh, look, I think he was both. Just, I think he's he's both actually. Oh yeah, well there you go. And you know, spent some time out here in Silicon Valley. I, it's just it's all it's all a show. It's all an act. You know, he 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 knows what Section Two Thirty actually does. You know, he doesn't. Uh, you know, he doesn't actually believe that. Um, you know what what he's spreading as far as the anti big tech stuff is concerned. He knows that 
Joe Biden won the election. That's why the statement that he put out was so tortured today. Uh, he just believes that the path forward is in you know this populist nationalist conservatism, and that if he can do what Donald Trump did and pretend to be you know on the side of the regular Joes, that none of that will matter. And and so you know that's all it is. And so that's why I think he is among the most fr- among the most frustrating. Uh, and, and, of, and the of, most of dangerous. So JBL, yeah. you put out a newsletter yesterday saying um, we should be mad about this. And, and you, you had completed this just before Holly decided that he was going to stand up. Go me, me, me. Yeah, it. Uh, you know, it's it, I. What I love about this actually is that it is a total emasculation of uh, cocaine, Mitch. Right. You know, th- this idea that Mitch McConnell would be able to exert power over senators in contradiction of the power of their, of the voters. Right. And so, so that he would be more powerful than Republican voters themselves was just a fantasy. And I was surprised that McConnell was so dumb as to push his chips into the center of the table and try to stop this thing from happening because there was absolutely no way it was going to be possible. And, you know, what is he going to do? Is he going to punish Josh Hawley, strip him of his committee assignments? No. And instead, what you're going to get is Katie bar the door. You're going to get a non-trivial number of Republican senators and a huge number of Republicans in the House voting to not accept the votes of the Electoral College. How many? How many do you think it'll be? In the House, I think it will be at least half of the caucus, at least half. And in the Senate, I, you know, a friend of mine said that he thinks it'll be about a third of the Senate, at least, is where he was going to set the over-under. 30? That feel no, I'm sorry, a third of the Republican caucus. That feels a little too pessimistic to me. But then when you start going through and going line by line, I don't know, because these things have a momentum of their own, right? Because they're show, it's a show trial vote. There's nothing, there's nothing actually on the line. There's nothing that's going to happen. We hope, but these guys, you know, are are being told to go up and show their loyalty. And have we had a moment yet in which the Republican Party Uh. has surprised you? By how willing it was to to show Donald Trump the door and be disloyal to him, because I, I haven't seen that. Sarah, yesterday I talked to Adam Kinzinger, a Republican congressman from from Illinois, and asked him the same question. He thought um, as many as a hundred Republican congressmen would vote to overturn the election or vote against counting the electoral college votes. I kind of would admit, you know, I. <laughs> <laughs> By this point, I, I shouldn't be shocked, or any, but it, it, it kind of turned my stomach, although the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, there, there's just no bottom for these guys. Well, yeah, I mean, we already have seen 160 vote to overturn the election uh, with that great by signing on to that crazy amicus brief in Texas. Uh, Did it I get that high? 160? Oof. Wasn't that it? Yeah, 165, I yeah. think. I think you shorted them. Shorter than five. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was it was an it was an enormous number. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things about Hawley's statement that I was thinking about is there's this crazy thing that Republicans have decided is okay, which is that they they do this thing where they look back at what the Dems did, things that they condemned the Democrats for doing that they thought was absolutely wrong when one or two you know nutty Democrats would do something like object, and they use that as the predicate to say that's why it's okay for them to do this. And like that is one of these it's one of my least favorite themes of current Republican talking points which is uh Democrats did this bad thing so now we're going to do it too. And that just this point about 
Josh Hawley in the height of cynicism where his ambition is far outstripping his judgment. You know, it'd be better if it was a guy like uh, Tommy Turberville, whose, you know, grasp of civics is tenuous, but <laughs> Hawley knows better. Uh, which means that now, yeah, I think we're just going to see one of the most cynical things we've ever seen in American democracy play out. And it is the things that's really gross about it is that, you know, and what's his name from Wisconsin? Your boy, Charlie. Ron uh, Ron Ron point, he said this. He said something at once about how, well, remember when he remember when we published that article from the uh, the the local Republican official who he did a phone call with him and off the record, Ron John saying, yeah, of course, he lost whatever. But American institutions are strong and, and they'll they'll get through this. These guys are all assuming that these institutions will protect themselves while they all do the wrong thing. And it it, it is infuriating. Can I do while we're on infuriating? Uh, yeah. I, I, can I do Please. one more rant about Hawley? Because while I was sure. listening to you guys, I was stewing. You know, he sent. I don't know if you saw this, but the, some the, a poor social media intern on Walmart, at Walmart from the main account replied <laughs> to Hawley's terrible statement, saying, "You know, you're a sore loser or something." Hawley responds to this, and, and I, I pulled it up. He's saying, "Thanks, Walmart, for your condescension. Now that you've insulted seventy-five million Americans, will you at least apologize for using slave labor?" Uh, and then he goes on to attack them for not paying wages enough. Um, so, besides the fact that he sounds like Bernie, there, I, I, I just like where. How can we get to this place where it is where where you're saying that you're insulting people's intelligence by just acknowledging the reality of who the president of the United States is and not supporting a coup. Like what is insulting to the American people is pretending like they're too stupid to understand who won the election. Like what is insulting to the American people is pretending like they're too stupid to see through your, your game where you play along with the toddler King, you know, as well, because, because he's throwing a temper tantrum. Tim, seventy like, percent of the Republican Party is too stupid to know the real answer to this. I mean, this okay, but but who, but is that an Hawley insult? Hawley is not I, wrong about that. <laughs> right, but are you, is that an insult though? Are we insulting the seventy-five million people by saying by by saying that? Like, is that really like the populist position here? Yeah, I mean, is it that is insulting them? Are we? I, I just I don't understand. We're just saying the facts of what happened. You know, you know how old I am? I can remember when conservatives were against the cancel culture. And you know you you you, you follow Josh Hawley and and, and this sort of this new style he you know the, the the lashing back at American employers and businesses vilifying them uh you know vaguely threatening government action against them and so when the left does it it's cancel culture when guys demagogues like Josh Hawley do it it's what. Yeah, yeah, the Daily Caller tweeted: Walmart's social media person is shaking in their boots. Like, well, yeah, like really, we're gonna like start a, a a you know we're gonna get the pitchforks out for the Walmart social media person? Like, how oh, is yeah, it they're, different they're than the Covington and... Catholic kid? You know. Yeah. Yeah, well, or the the girl who had the three second video. Okay, so let's 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 do the year. Should we do the year here? Sarah? Yeah, before we do, can yeah. I just I'm just going to fact check us in real time. It was Please. 126 Republicans that voted for it. We're transposing an additional numbers. 40. No, didn't an additional 40? No, it was all? originally 106, and then 20 more hmm. came on board. Okay, I thought it was there's only like 190 some Republicans in the House to begin with. Yeah, so anyway, it's, 126 it's, it's, final number. It's bad enough without making it worse. Okay, so Sarah. I went went you to weigh in. Let's let's do twenty twenty the year in in re review. I mean, this is an amazing year. I mean, I I understand that everybody thinks you know this is a big year, but 
you, you really have to work hard to come up with a year since 1968 where you had all the things. You had racial unrest. You had a pandemic. You had an economic crisis. You had this election. You had the fight uh, you know, after the election. So, Sarah, you, you go first. Pick a defining moment of 2020, just one moment that you think encapsulates the year. I'm going to go back, and it might not even feel like this was um, happening this year, but impeachment was going on. Remember that beginning Whoa. of the year? Oh, no, forgot. Uh, that was this know, year. Yeah, it was. And I think that um, now I, maybe and I, I actually should have looked because in my head, uh, impeachment was still going on. Um, but I can't now remember, as I'm about to say it, when the House vote was, because I was going to say the defining moment for me hmm. was when Will Hurd um, mm. made his speech and it became clear that there were going to be no Republicans in the House that were going to vote to impeach uh, President Trump. Uh, and especially the ones that, that we sort of counted on to be the rational voices, because that was when I knew things were more or less over. Like there wasn't, there weren't Republican guardrails anymore. Mm. Um, and if if I'm if I'm missing it because that happened in 2019, if anybody can fact check me in real time, mm. then I would go with the next step, which is that when Republicans wouldn't allow witnesses in the yeah. impeachment trial, um, just both of those things. There was this. I had been up until that point, and Bill can vouch for this. Really maintained a sense that look. I, they're yes, Republicans are being really bad, but you know they won't just write this guy a blank check. Um, they will continue to do. They will. They will uphold their oaths. And hmm. I was wrong about that. Okay, uh, JVO, defining moment for me. It was the moment when Trump laid down the marker about what he was going to do with COVID. So in the in the earliest days of COVID. The Trumpian posture was, well, you know, this is serious stuff over there. But uh, my buddy, President Xi of China, uh, he has got it under control, you know, and he was it was a serious thing that was happening over there. And when it got here, there was a moment where Trump pivoted to the it will all go away like a miracle. And that then became his stance. And that I think think has to go down mm -hmm. as the most irresponsible thing any president of the United States has done maybe ever, certainly since the like the advent of the Civil War or something like that. Uh, we, we will have we will be we'll be right at or just above 400,000 dead Americans just by the official count, which is almost certainly an undercount. And, you know, when we get the forensic accounting of all of this by looking at death tables and all that two years from now, that will almost certainly be at least 10% low. But by the time he leaves office, we will have lost 400,000 Americans in, in 11 months. And I, I just don't think people really get their head around what that means. You know, I mean, in New Jersey, where I'm from, one in 500 people has died from COVID. Not like one in 500 people who got it. If, if you live in New Jersey, there's a one in 500 chance that you died from this thing. And this all happened because of the stance he decided to take, where he decided that he was going to choose to make the pandemic into a political issue. And his position was going to be that it isn't a big deal. Hmm. Bill Crystal defining moment. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm where Sarah is. I think the House vote was in December, the end of December. 
2019, but then the Romney speech in 2020, and was that February 6th, the, the one person who stood up and, and told the truth and uh, and we all praised him as, he, as we should have. But in, in a way, what's most amazing is there was one of him, right? The senators have six-year terms. They're much senior to the House members in so many ways, uh, several of them retiring, uh, several of them you think looking to history. And as, as Sarah said, I think you can't even, not only didn't they vote to convict, they didn't even vote to have witnesses or and didn't even really condemn him. And indeed, more and more of them, as the year went on, I think Charlie or JVL pointed this out in a recent uh, newsletter, one more of them have just bought into the Russia hoax thing. So two years ago, it was, look, there were some bad, you know, it's legitimate to investigate it, but they didn't find anything that was, uh, you know, uh, confirmed uh, illegality. Uh, they didn't find anything conclusive. So let's move on. By now, the whole narrative among Republicans is basically to accept Trump's uh, claim that it was a hoax. Not that it was, you know, didn't quite prove what it might have proven to to make him dis- to disqualify him from holding office. So the collapse of the Republican guardrails. And I always come back to that because much as I loathe Trump and I'm happy he lost, we should forget that. That did happen this year. I mean, he couldn't have done nearly the damage he did do if the entire Republican Party hadn't gone along with him and enabled him, the Republican Party in Congress, and the almost entire conservative movement. That for me is the real lasting effect of 2020, unfortunately. Tim Miller. I think it has to be Trump getting the virus uh, and then continuing to, you know, go on his COVID super spreader tour. I just think like looking back on this 25 years from now, you know, to think that we will have had this virus that JVL just laid out, whatever it ends up being, half a million dead. Uh, The president acted as if it was a hoax, contracted it himself, had to be airlifted to the hospital. And then within days was out spreading the contagion with thousands of, of rabid fans screaming the entire time. I, I just think that kind of series of scenes over a week or two in October of an election year um, is, is what will stand out as, as something that encapsulates both the virus and the president's irresponsibility. Yeah, I, when, when I was making my notes for picking the defining moment, it was it was it was the moment where the president was holding the daily briefings, and he suggested uh, injecting bleach into people's bodies <laughs> yeah. in order to kill COVID, which which really sort of captured just the mind of Donald Trump, his lack of seriousness, the clownishness of the man, and I think it was one of those moments that that uh, uh, you know convinced the American public that perhaps four more years of this would be a bad idea. And, and Bill mentioned this, but. Clearly, the the uh, decisive defeat of uh, of Donald Trump making him a one term president was was certainly one of the defining moments of the year. Okay, so Tim, let's start with you on all of this. What were you most right about this year? What were you most wrong about? I've been wrong so much lately. I just have to say, I was really right this year, pretty much. Um, I had a couple of misses, but um, I think the thing that I was the most right about was Mike Bloomberg. I sniffed him out. The second he, you know, stuck his head out from New York, I think a lot of people had false hope about him. Uh, I knew that that was uh, DOA. Um, I think I was right about, uh, you know, Trump's nature. We all were. I think everybody here, I can just say this for everybody, is right about Trump's nature. There's a lot of people who, you know, thought he might take things seriously or change his nature at some point over the course of the year, given all the severity, and obviously he wasn't. Um I, I was worried about the thing to be worried about about the election, which was the increased turnout among the, there are a lot more you know non college white people in the country than people realize. Um, the thing I was wrong about, I you, you, I'm going to give away the secret. You told us these beforehand, so I had time to go find this text. I sent my friends this text um, after Bernie won Nevada, 
Bernie has a 95% chance of being the nominee, Biden 4%, field one. So I guess I was right. I guess I wasn't that wrong, was Biden, um, but uh, I certainly overestimated Bernie in that moment. What was your date? The date on that? That was February 22nd, I think. I didn't screenshot whatever the day. That's Saturday of the Nevada caucus um i thought that uh, i thought that bernie bernie had it um and i guess yeah. i also thought that i'd be able to go on a vacation by august or september come march so well a lot of us thought so. i was wrong about the, that too i would say that one of the most uh, important pieces we ever ran in the bulwark was your piece that basically told the democrats you have what 11 days to turn this around otherwise you're going to be stuck with bernie sanders that was and written looked- two days two or three days after that text where i thought bernie was in it was really close to winning and then we know we know what what happened. Uh, Bill Bill Crystal, what were you most right about? What were you most wrong about? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure I was wrong about so many things. I hate to even sort them out, you know. <laughs> but just on that, if I can slightly evade the question, and and, and on Tim's point, you know, we we're all it, 2020 was a close run thing in the sense that it was not. I mean, Tim wasn't ridiculous or being silly when he said it's 95 percent chance Bernie. He had Bernie had won or tied for victory in the first three caucuses, you know, first three contests, uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. Biden had run, what, fifth, fourth and fifth and third or fourth, something like that. No one's ever won the nomination with that start. Uh, Biden came back and didn't just win South Carolina, but somehow just got such momentum that he blew everyone away in, in within a week or two. It was kind of amazing. Um, so that was kind of, it's, it was less inevitable than everyone now thinks that Biden was going to be the nominee or that Bernie wasn't going to be the nominee. Uh, and then secondly, it's much less inevitable that Biden won than people kind of like to remember because for mm-hmm. all the 7 million votes and all that, at the end of the day, it was small margins and obviously Georgia, Arizona and Wisconsin and those three, without those three, it's 269, 269 and, and Trump wins. So in the House, presumably. So uh, the close run thing, what did Wellington say about Waterloo? A near run thing, I think. It was the having an adequate outcome. And this is not, I don't think American democracy is in great shape and structurally sound and no problems ahead, but having even a like fighting chance at something with a Biden presidency was not inevitable. And, and we came close to not having that. Hmm. Sarah Longwell. Um, so here, the thing that I feel like uh, I was most right about was the idea that it was going to turn out to be suburban voters, sort of right-leaning independents who were going to end up being decisive. Um, it's the reason we built uh, in a separate thing that we do, um, you know, Republican voters against Trump. And ultimately, you know, turnout was extraordinarily high on both sides. And the margins in a lot of these key swing states were a lot of these suburban right-leaning voters uh, voting for Biden. Um, And I think that that uh, was really important. And there's a reason that we focused on it. Um, but, But in the same vein, you know, I think one of the things that I was most wrong about was I really thought women we're going to abandon uh, Trump wholesale. Mm-hmm. And all of the polling going up uh, through the election, I spent a lot of my time talking to women who voted for Trump in 2016 um, and who viewed him unfavorably. And I really thought that was going to be just a cratering, uh, have a cratering effect on Trump. And, you know, uh, obviously the suburbs did sort of move, shift away from him in key ways that cost him the election, but it was not the abandonment that I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. JVL. You know, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding like an enormous jackass, <laughs> but don't I do it. Go right ahead. Yeah. 
everything in 2020. And if people, I, I do feel as though, if I could just toot my own, if you have been reading my newsletter for the last year, then nothing that has happened came as a surprise to you. Uh, I, I, I was very early on Biden the entire time. I, you know, I, I wrote one piece saying that the Occam's razor version of this election is that Biden wins by five points. Uh, because that's sort of the natural gravity of the race. That's where we wound up being. Uh, I was right about how big COVID was. I was running around ringing the alarm bells in early February about this. Uh, I remember doing another show where I was being made fun of by my two co-hosts talking about how uh, all movie theaters in America were going to shut down and it could be the death knell for the studio system and Hollywood as we know it. And they were like, oh, come on. This is... And I said, no, you don't understand how viral spread works. Uh, I was right about the politicization of COVID. Once, uh, once Trump si decided to say that it was going to all go away like a miracle, I said that we, he's fracturing the country along this line and we're going to wind up with a much worse... Uh, outcome in the pandemic than we have to. I was right about the death totals. I was very early on. I, I had a piece saying that, uh, you know, when we, when our number dead was still below 9-11, I wrote a piece saying that we could very, very easily wind up at a place where our total number of dead for the year 2020 winds up being more than 9-11 plus Korea plus Vietnam plus World War One, And then we are absolutely going to be over that. Uh, I was right about Donald Trump losing. I was right about Donald Trump refusing to concede. Can, can I, I please right chime in here? Republicans can going along in? with with his <laughs> do you whole have a wrong? Do you have a wrong? Because I'm going to do your wrong for you. If, I, if I, you do don't have, I do have. Okay, I do have. I want to hear yours, but I might have to add on to it because I agree you've been right a lot, but that was a really long list. So you, somebody's got to take you down a peg. So, but I want to hear your wrong first. So I, I have three things that I was wrong about. Um, one was impeachment. I had thought that there would be a handful of Republicans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people who were leaving off, not people who were going to hang around, but the Will Hurds of the world, people who who had no skin in the game, who would stake out a small anti-Trump outpost uh, just if, for nothing else to make this as an Alamo for normal conservatives in the post-Trump world and would and would try to create an off-ramp from Trumpism. And there was not. There was, there was not anyone anywhere willing to do that. Uh, I did not... I did not fully understand exactly how bad the federal government's response to COVID could be, hmm. um, which is say I, I did not appreciate how deep down into just the apparatus of the government's Trumpism could leach, you know, to the idea where you'd have guys like Fauci and Burks uh, muzzled or sidelined and you'd have the FDA and the CDC totally politicized. Uh, and I, I did not... I thought that the most likely outcome in the last two weeks was that the race could, was going to break open mm -hmm. and wind up in a Trump landslide because just the environmental factors. I thought the polarization can't be this deep that it turns out nothing matters and that we'll wind up with the same outcome we would have had, you know, had you run the race in January of 2020. And I was dead wrong about that. Like we are dug into the point where 75 million Americans looked at mass death and economic destruction, mm. looked at lying, looked at immorality and said affirmatively, we want more of that. And I did not fully appreciate just how bad things were in this country uh, as a political matter.
Okay, Tim, does that satisfy you? Okay, yeah. No, the third one was what I was going to say. He was a little too bullish on on the Biden landslide, and you also you also didn't know Colonel Sanders was a real person. But besides that, JVL got everything right this year, and people really should sign up for his newsletter. Um, but yeah, Colonel so Sanders was the other in, one. In, in, in terms in terms of right and wrong, um, just a, a couple of small things. You know, I, I guess the thing I was most wrong about is I really thought that the Trump stink would uh, would stick to the senators more. Um, I didn't think that there would be the division between the presidential ballot and the down ballot the way that it turned out to be. So that was that was a mistake. Um, I got one thing right and wrong at the same time uh, early on. Uh, when there were the street riots, um, I was warning Democrats that you need to take this seriously. This is something that actually could work for Trump's behavior, you know, for Trump's base to turn out the base, particularly in small towns in places like Wisconsin. Um, it's it, it's a danger. So I was right about that. I was wrong to believe the conventional wisdom that somehow the law and order issue didn't work because I do think that it worked. But guys, you know, just step back a bit. Do you know what we were fundamentally cosmically right about? I mean, we are sitting here in this, I mean, really people at the end of 2020. And could there be a more dramatic, more decisive vindication for never Trump than watching Trump's last few weeks in office? Is there any doubt? I mean, this is one where it's not just we were right. We were right from the beginning for years, and we have spent the last four or five years setting ourselves professionally on fire, saying this is a complete disaster. This man is a liar. He's a mendacious narcissist. He will lead the party in the country to the brink of ruin. And oh, my God, it's almost painful how thoroughly the vindication has been. I mean, can we at least acknowledge that? It is really satisfying. It's satisfying, but it's. But it's also like, God, I didn't want to be this right. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, oh, fuck. It's just, it's so it is so bad. You know what though? It would be better if more of the people who now clearly, yeah, clearly right. know that we were right were out there admitting it, as opposed yeah. to simply writing op eds saying this is horrible. This person's an existential threat to our democracy without ever acknowledging that they blocked and tackled for this guy for the last four years and acted like this dude just showed up, you know, acting like this just now. Sarah, I've got a great therapist that will help you deal with this. And it's important to just acknowledge your correctness and your integrity internally and not need external validation for it. It's something I've been working through for about five years No, no, no. But here's the thing, Tim. I don't need them to tell me that I'm right. I need them to admit that they were wrong. (laughs) Kind of same. <laughs> Not the same. So th- this is we're we're talking about Rich Lowry again and the guys at National Review. <laughs> we, we can actually and the New York Post. All these guys who are like, this is really disgraceful. Like, yes, what did you think? Sarah, you and I both wrote a similar article. It's like, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, what did you imagine when you put this guy in office and you decided you were going to go on in and you were going to do all the anti-anti stuff and all the whataboutism? What did you think was going to happen? to this country. How did you think it was going to turn out? Please do not tell us now that you're shocked and appalled to realize that Donald Trump is exactly who he was when he came down the goddamn escalator back in 2015. Hire the burn it all down guy and then be shocked things are on fire. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So uh, JVL, I'm going to steal um, a question that you asked us during our last live cast, because maybe there's not a complete Venn diagram of people listen to this and watch the live, but it was such a good question. Who was, what was the best, most satisfying failure, departure, fall of 2020? 
and we've all, we've all addressed this, but I thought we'd go back to it. Yeah, you know, I've I've had a lot of soul searching since we did this on the live cast because I was concerned that that we had left a lot of money on the table. Mm-hmm. You know, we had bypassed some relief, and I I'm going to bring up somebody who was mentioned during the live cast anyway, though Jerry Falwell Jr. That was my answer. It was your answer because, but here's I'm here to say that you were more correct even than we gave you credit for being. And we all gave you tens. I believe yeah. you got a perfect 10. Even mm-hmm. the East German judge gave you a 10 on your answer. I did feel it was a mic drop moment. It it wasn't just that he was deposed like the worst sort of authoritarian dictator within his own kingdom. It's that the mechanism of it made it obvious that he's actually a cuck in the literal sense. Literal. That this is a guy who just like gets off on watching his wife get boned by other dudes. And I don't know, like <laughs> there's so much going on here. I mean, the whole Christian evangelical thing, the scam, the grift, the, the, the stupidity, the, just everything, the MAGA Charlie Kirk connection. I mean, it was, it just, it's all right there. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a one man walking miniseries. Who, who would have imagined when they formed the Falkirk Center that within a year it would be Charlie Kirk who was embarrassed to be associated with Jerry Falwell, <laughs> not the other way around. <laughs> That's pretty good. Okay. I've lost track of what the order should be. So I need uh, to go. Cause I don't want somebody to take mine. Okay. The <laughs> obvious other one. And I, I, I had other people on the live stream stole it from me. And I don't think that they had the same passion that I do for the subject matter. Okay. And that is Stephen, Stephen K. Bannon. I don't think that people appreciate just how how the world was in the palm of Stephen Bannon's hand. He was the chairman of a racist blog. That was his job. Um, he had a rich benefactor that was letting him live in a weird house on Capitol Hill that had a had a Lincoln bedroom uh, replica in it, which is where he slept. I think. Um, and and that was his job. He had a bunch of weirdos that worked for him. And um, all of a sudden, the the center of gravity within the Republican Party uh, landed right there on top of that little embassy on Capitol Hill. And 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 as chairman of Breitbart, uh, he had un un shocking powers that you wouldn't even imagine during the 2016 campaign in the primary people said that matt boyle who is his his big reporter was the most influential policy person on any campaign besides jebs and john Kasich's because everybody just did whatever breitbart wanted um donald trump didn't have a political operation uh he fell into bannon's lap Bannon's theory of the case was Donald Trump's theory of the case. Donald Trump didn't know that, but you know he just had it instinctually. Bannon had a had a political framework around it. They win, shockingly. He goes into the White House. There's nobody in there that knows what the hell they're doing. He is the chief strategist for a president of the United States who is a literal puppet. Uh, Steve Bannon could have put anybody that he wanted in the White House. They could have signed any executive orders that he wanted. He could have done untold damage to the country. But he had he had one tragic flaw, and that was that he still wanted to be loved by the famous people. He still wanted to call Vanity Fair and get invited to parties and and be featured in that one guy's book whose name I'm blanking on, uh, Michael Wolf, and 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 so he got on. He wanted to be on the cover of Time. And so he got on Trump's bad side 
he was out of there in like eight Scaramucci's. Uh, he didn't hire anybody serious to do the Muslim ban uh, to, to put it together. So it was a complete, so it was a total crap show. And, and then he ends up getting jailed while on a Chinese businessman's yacht because he stole money for building a fake wall uh, using the money of, of MAGA, of Breitbart readers and MAGA supporters. He stole their money and promised them to build a wall that he was never going to build, just like just like Donald Trump. I mean, this is just an epic collapse. He has a trial next year. He could be in jail for decades uh, if he's found guilty um, of this. And and he literally could have been the most I cannot I cannot underscore this enough the most powerful person in the world had he played his cards right it fell in his lap and instead jail it's just it's so great this is the second one where the scriptwriters really really outdid themselves I mean they yeah. really tied together so many of the plot lines okay so Bill Crystal your most satisfying moment of Schadenfreude I think would be one way of putting this topic. I can't compete with those excellent oh, uh, more. commentaries. <laughs> the real, the real, you can hear in the voice, the real schadenfreude or the real <laughs> in the fall of these despicable people. So that's, uh, that's good. I mean, I guess I'll just say Trump. I mean, at the end of the day, Trump mm-hmm. lost re-election, which was very important for the country and very much, uh, very damaging to his ego for all the compensation he's now un- undergoing and, uh, and a good, and a good thing, something, something to enjoy. Sarah, this isn't what I said on the live cast, but I'm going to go with this one uh, because it's a good one, which is Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the thing was with Rudy, um, I like read this guy's book. Like I am just of that age where I was in college when 9-11 happened. I became fascinated by him as a figure, um, thought uh, he was, you know, like I, I wanted to work on his presidential campaign. Uh, I, I like really, really was bought into him and, um, the way that he has embraced Trump has been his biggest advocate, uh, has really just, you watch him unraveling, um, and spending all of his hard earned credibility, uh, squandering it on Trump. The, when he held his press conference, uh, and was trying to, you know, pop the top off the Kraken with Sidney Powell. And, you know, he's sweating his hair dye all over the place. Um, and he just is totally beclowning himself. Uh, I, I, I think that, look, I just don't, I don't know what it is with people like who, who really do have great careers and then they just totally like eat it. Um, for some reason, I don't know why, but he, he is one of the worst and I cannot wait to usher him off the national stage. So that moment when, when we had the hair dye coming down his face was a couple of weeks after he had been humiliated in the Borat movie, you know, for putting his hands down his pants, you know, caught on camera. And that the Borat thing really doesn't make the top five most humiliating moments for Rudy Giuliani in 2020. <laughs> That's the thing about Rudy. And you're right. And I, I, know, I can't remember whether I said this on the podcast or the, or the live stream. I can't remember sometimes what I've said and what I've just thought. Although at this point, having done more than 500 podcasts, I probably said everything I thought. Um, but, you know, here's a guy, if, if he would have died in, in 20, you know, in right, right, right after 9-11 or, or in a couple of years after that, there'd be parks, there'd be schools, there'd be bridges named after him, there'd be airports named after him. We wouldn't be flying into LaGuardia, you'd be flying into Giuliani, right? And yet now the man is a complete joke. Okay, so I, there's a couple of other people whose names we throw out here. Uh, Wayne LaPierre, I think, you know, needs to be sort of tossed into the hopper in terms of his, although he's still probably on the payroll. We had a couple of other folks like that too, but 
you know, there were there were so many of these folks that figured they could get it on the Trumpian grift and then realized that no, if, if your name isn't Trump, you can't get away with some of the same things. So, Sarah, I think we have time to do all this good stuff here. So it, we, we talked about a defining moment of the year. Um, and I think we get very close to getting to this. So I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. But is there any moment that you look back on and say, that was the turning point moment of the year? That was the moment where everything that could have begun, you know, as as Bill said, this was a near run thing where it could have gone terribly wrong. But that was the moment that um, that changed everything. You know, looking back now with the benefit of hindsight and just seeing how close the election was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, there were two things that had they gone differently, Trump would have won. One is if this COVID stimulus package uh, that Trump just held up and then finally signed at the 11th hour had gone through mm-hmm. prior, you know, and he'd done the whole checks with his name on it, the Trump bucks thing. I think that that could have put him over the edge. The other thing, and this this really was something I'll just never forget how I felt while I was watching it, but it was the first debate where Trump just came out sweaty and crazed and possibly already having COVID for all we know, because we never got a straight answer about when he got it. Um, But I think that people were so horrified by his performance. Um, Had he come out uh, in the first debate the way that he did in the last debate? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how things would have gone. Tim Miller. Um, I'm just going to give three quick ones. I don't think there's any reason to believe that anybody else besides Joe Biden would have certainly won. And so to that point, I go back to the Jim Clyburn, South Carolina, and then Pete and Amy. I appreciate the credit for my article, but it was really the actions of those other Democratic folks that followed through. um, And thank gosh they did. Um, uh, JVL kind of alluded to this earlier, but I I just think that there's this pivot opportunity between Trump going nativist, anti-China, you know, strong borders, um, strong on the China virus, Trump, which has its own problems, but would have been much preferable to hoax hydroxychloroquine Trump. And so I think that was a turning point. I mean, he tried to have his cake and eat it too, really, but he pretty much settled on the hoax side of that equation, which I think were the two realistic options, given the president that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I did think the other thing that I mentioned I don't know that it had electoral impact, but just culturally speaking, I, I just think it would be remiss to not mention the Floyd and mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor protests. Um, I, I think that they had a lot of, will have a long lasting political um, uh, um, you know, effect uh, on, frankly, on both sides of, you know, sort of the younger uh, voters engagement into the process. And then I think what resulted in this kind of defund the police and I think kind of radicalizing some elements of the opposition against it, um, um, unfortunately. Yeah. So I, I think that those are the three that I would look at. So J- JVL turning point, I, I've already said that I, th- I think that Jim Clyburn moment in South Carolina, everything is different. If if but if Biden doesn't win South Carolina, this whole year story is different, but it wouldn't change necessarily the trajectory of the of the coronavirus, which you mentioned. So. There's obviously your your take. You know, the the one thing that I I feel like this could wind up being a turning point into the future, but I'm not sure in a good way or a bad way. And that is the way in which the Biden incoming team has absolutely refused to engage in any way on any of the Trump coup attempt stuff. 
And that decision, which has been, I think, enforced with pretty reasonable levels of discipline all the way up and down the Democratic side of the aisle, they simply don't take the bait on any of this. They don't push back on all of it. They are just letting Trump fight the court system. And uh, and maybe that's good. Maybe it's good that it should be Trump versus the law and not Trump versus the Democrats. But the other side of that is that they are allowing uh they they are allowing Republicans writ large to simply be e- more easily s- subsumed into the ongoing Trumpism. You see what I'm saying? So we, so the, the Biden is is at one point he's trying to lower the temperature. Clearly, he's trying to to not have there be long term divisions, and that's important, I think. But I do wonder if. If the flip side of that could be that at some point, if you don't push back against these things, they just get into the groundwater in ways that uh, that you can't fight. So I don't know if it's good or bad and maybe it won't have anything to do with anything, you know, 12 months from now. But it feels to me kind of important that Biden has made that decision and uh, and also non obvious that he would have decided to do it this way. You know, this in, in terms of turning points, also the, the the refusal of the president and the refusal of Republicans to acknowledge the victory early on. And they thought, well, let's give him a little bit of space to uh, to work through it. That uh, that's going to be one of those decisions that's going to have consequences for it, not just 12 months from now, but maybe 12 years from now. And I'm not sure that we fully know how deep the damage is going to go. OK, so, Bill, um, this, I think this will be our last 2020 question, though. So what, what was the turning point for you? Yeah, I think you guys have covered that thoroughly, and uh, I don't, uh, I don't have any brilliant, any anything brilliant to add. So let's let's go to twenty twenty one. Okay, so uh, we'll start with you, Bill. So this is the big question. You know, twenty twenty, I think, was just a terrible year for just the world. Despite certain people on Twitter saying, "Hey, it wasn't so bad." I mean, most people, the ones that didn't actually die or lose their jobs or, uh, or you know, had had their their homes burned down or anything, um, all they missed were a few vacations. It was a horrific year. So the question is: Is twenty twenty one going to be better? And this is sort of the the, the vehicle for how is Biden going to do? How easy is it going to be to crawl out of this hole that we're in? So, Bill, how, how what, 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 what does your crystal ball tell you about 2021? I think it'll be better than 2020. <laughs> That's a low bar. Yeah. Though, I don't know. You know, of course, you say that. And, of course, you immediately think of all the really horrible things that could happen. And, and you hate to even make a prediction like that because those kinds of predictions are so often wrong and history surprises one so much. But, no, I think he will do I think we have a decent chance of coming out of the COVID nightmare by the summer and the economy will pick up again. And I think and hope really that Biden is a reasonably successful president, especially for those first six, nine months. It'd be very good for the country. One minor thing that's going to be extremely annoying in 2021, however, and I was thinking about this in terms of Hawley. So I, Hawley will not get, I don't, I'd be super surprised if he gets a majority of House Republicans, but he's not going to get a majority of Senate Republicans. So let's just say half the Republican conference doesn't vote with Hawley, assuming he does push it through to a real vote, which he's sort of cagey on in his statement. The Democrats didn't ever get an actual, it hasn't been a recorded vote on this since 1876, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. He could withdraw, he could raise an objection or withdraw, he may have all kinds of cutesy things. So maybe he's digging himself in, he's going to have to have a vote. Anyway, half the Republicans are going to vote against it. 
and all the kind of anti-anti-Trump, sort of accommodating Republicans who want to pretend Trump didn't exist and we're moving on, are going to say, see, the party's pretty healthy. Mitch McConnell didn't vote to overturn the election. The, you know, a lot of the House leadership, some of the House leadership, the Cheney didn't vote that way. And suddenly all the acquiescence, all the enabling, all the endorsing of Trump for re-election is going to be, you know, go right down the memory hole. It's going to be forgotten, and we're all, and they're all going to try to pretend that you know basically things are okay in the Republican Party. There are some of those wackos like Hawley. We're not quite for them, maybe, but you know, there's the Nikki Haley side of it. So for those of us who would like a little more accountability for what happened, not for the sake of revenge simply, or, or, or for the sake even of the historical record simply, but because going forward it's kind of important, we would think. I don't think we're going to be happy with that. I, I, I think this the actually weirdly the Hawley thing will help kind of whitewash almost the behavior of those Republicans who don't go all the way with Hawley. Okay. So JVL, I want to just sort of pick up on what you were saying. You know, the, the Biden folks have decided they want to lower the temperature. They don't want to fight back. So in 2021, you know, part of my looking ahead of the year is, 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 is Joe Biden reading the situation correctly? Is he going to be able to sustain the, hey, I can work with these guys, we can compromise. Um, so what if they don't think I'm a legitimate president? I can still get things done. I, I can still, um, you know, ign- ignore the worst, the most egregious uh, abuses. So give me your sense. I, I know that it's not your normal, you know, default setting to be optimistic, but how will 2021 be better than 2020? And if so, how? There are ways in which it should be better. Uh, the vaccine distribution will go better than it has been. Uh, it's, that's been an absolute scandal that we've barely even talked about. Uh, the overall handling of the pandemic will be better. Uh, that will in itself cause an economic uptick. People will, there'll be more economic activity. So people who have really hurt them, been hurt in the service sector will wind up getting jobs back. That's very helpful, I think. But what what concerns me is that this is a a government problem. I mean, so the, the destruction caused by the pandemic was in a very large, not all, but in very large part, either caused by or exacerbated by the actions and decisions of the federal government. The, you know, our government did this to America. And bailing us out and getting us back onto our feet is is in part the responsibility of the government. They made this mess. They need to help clean it up. It is not clear to me how if Donald Trump is out there holding rallies and demanding that Republicans vote this way or that way for him and attempting to run a shadow government, it's not clear to me that our government will be able to function as as intended with a legislature and an executive and a judicial branch. And I don't know what the solution is to that, you know, except that eventually Biden would have to lean more in towards executive power, which he doesn't want to do, and which I think most smart people don't want him to do either, either because part of the problem is that we've had too much executive power. It just seems to me that the long term, what we will see in 2021, we'll see some very good things, hopefully, but we will also start to get a sense of just how deep the long term damage goes from Trumpism. And it will, the, the full bill from the last four years will start to come due. And I, I expect to us to to decide uh, in retrospect that we had underestimated how much mm-hmm. damage Trump was doing to to our political organization. Sarah. Uplifting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I long. mean, 
and and I agree to some extent with JVL that the, the, the damage has been enormous, um, whether it's to our faith in institutions, our trust in one another. Um, I mean, it it is we probably haven't it's been such a such a whiplash time four years that it the full accounting hasn't been done that being said i am constantly bullish on 2021 if for no other reason than you know we're at the bottom of the hole and i believe we're gonna start digging out which means everything is up it's all upside after after a year this bad um and i think that biden is uniquely suited for the time and the situation uh that we find ourselves in and I believe that his heart is in the right place and that he is um, I, I am whether the calculation is exactly correct or not. I am actually quite I quite admire the way that Biden has handled just about everything. And um, I think he is going to continue to sort of doggedly try to work with these Republicans. And one of the things that I always JBL and I argue about this a lot, but something that I think gets underestimated in terms of like Trump's hold on the party long term, is that I think that people forget how much a bunch of these Republicans hate Donald Trump, deeply, deeply loathe him. Uh, that doesn't mean that they had that. That doesn't um, cast their cynicism in a in a completely in, in in a more horrific light because it it does. And but we've known this all along. How many of them waited for Trump to fall? more um, as time goes on for there to be more investigations that without, you know, the immunity that being president presents him, um, you know, we just see more and more distance being put between people who were ready to put distance between themselves and Trump. And they can do some of that by working with a guy like Biden, who most of them like personally, or lots of them do. And so I just, I have this optimism around the idea that there can be some forward motion and that we will at the very least be digging ourselves out of that hole. And I also get the sense that the economy is, 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 is going to snap back, that there's just sort of a lot of pent up demand out there that people are just waiting to get back to normal. And also look, I mean, you know, the best part about, you know, having, you know, hitting your head, you know, with, with a hammer is how good it feels when you stop stop doing it. And 2021 is going to be the year we stop hitting ourselves in the head with a hammer all the time. So Tim Miller, are you optimistic about 2021? Will it be better than 2020? I know I the mean, bar is Donald Trump isn't going to be the freaking president of the United States. So uh, it's got to be a little bit better. Um, yeah, you got 99 you know, problems, but he's not one of them. Yeah, my friend John McCain, our, our, all of our friends used to say, used to misqu- misquote Mao. He'd say that uh, it's always darkest before it gets pitch black. He liked, uh, he liked that. Uh, that dour note, uh, Mal actually actually said it's always darkest before the dawn. So I, I don't know if, if we'll find McCain or Mal to be more prescient on 2021. But I, I mean, I just, I think that J- JBL's point is right, that the underlying, um, a lot of the underlying elements that brought about why 2016 to 2020 was so bad haven't gone anywhere and in fact have gotten worse. And so I, I don't expect you know, that we will have a, you know, snap back to Candyland um, in 2021. But, you know, Donald Trump going away and knocking on wood vigorously, hopefully the novel coronavirus going away, um, you know, is, is going to, I think, lead to, um, you know, a, at least a period of respite for all of us. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I hope that, that we can recognize that and not become addicted to, um, you know, the terribleness, which, which I think is a risk. 
Yeah, the terribleness is still out there, and in all all of the bad things that have been happening, they're still sort of you know they're they're still there in terms of you know our divisions, in terms of the bullshit, in terms of the Republican Party. But you know what? You know, twenty twenty one is going to begin with the month of January. January begins with the the latest defeat. Donald Trump will lose the presidential election again, what is about the 15th time. And then on January 20th, he will cease to be the president. Joe Biden will become the president. So there's that. The vaccine is coming online. Um, I, I think there's a lot of reason to think that 2021 will be substantially better. But the one thing that we've learned is that, you know, predictions are tough. And uh, no, I don't think that we're going to get back to Candyland. I don't think the Republican Party snaps back to rationality. But look, guys, um, considering how tough this year has been, realizing that we're going into a year in which Donald Trump ceases to be president of the United States, we need to do a mini victory lap, just a little bit of a victory lap. Don't you think, folks? Just a little bit. I agree with that, Charlie. And I just want to. Yeah. And I just want to say that when you said, you know, everybody set their careers on fire, like it's true that everybody uh, took a big risk and, uh, you know, by just (laughs) refusing to kind of do the thing that so many other people did with the kind of fence riding anti-anti thing. But at this point, I'd like to think that that fire that everybody set their career on is like the fire emoji on Twitter because, uh, you know, this podcast, uh, is just an enormous smashing success as are all of you, uh, and the publication in general. So, um, so I feel great about that. So that is a great note to end 2020 on, unless somebody else wants to weigh in. Um, I think that we ought to let Sarah put that period in the, awful, terrible, terrible year that we've survived and triumphed in. And I think that, you know, look, uh, we've, we've, we've had our, we've had our setbacks and disappointments and our souls have been crushed. But I do think that we ought to just, again, as you go into the new year, take a deep breath. You know what? You know, some things have changed. We've won some big ones and it's been a real pleasure to be associated with all of you. A great year for the bulwark, just a fantastic year. Next year will be even better. So Bill Crystal, JVL, Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. And happy new year to all of you. Thank you for listening to the Bulwark podcast. Thank you for subscribing to Bulwark Plus. Thank you for reading um, our, our, our stuff. Thank you for keeping the faith in 2020. Have a happy new year.